Thank you, Danny. Uh, for our scripture reading this morning, we will be continuing um, in the book of Psalm and looking at another Psalm of David. So if you would go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, and we'll be reading the first six verses. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Will you join with me for a time of prayer? Merciful Father, we come to you this morning broken over our sin. Not just the sin we see in the world around us, not just the effect of sin we see played out on social and news media, not even the sin of our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, but especially the sin that resides in each of our own hearts. We confess, along with King David, that while you are blameless and just, we are guilty of much evil, transgression, and iniquity. It's not so much what we've done or what we have failed to do, but rather who we are at the core fallen humanity, born in sin, that makes us guilty before a holy and perfectly righteous God. Our sin is ever before us, yet we see only in part. Would you forgive us not just of presumptuous sins, but also of hidden faults? For we know that no creature is hidden from your sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give account. Would you humble us and remind us that if a man such as King David, a man after your own heart, was capable of adultery and murder, none of us should have any confidence in our flesh. For who amongst us has not already committed murder and adultery in our heart, and given the right circumstance, would not stumble and fall into temptation. In light of who we are and all that's happening in the world around us, we praise you for who you are, that you are a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy, that as our good shepherd, you pursued us, not because of any righteousness of our own, but because you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, out of your steadfast love and abundant mercy, you offer salvation exclusively in your Son 
through the gift of faith and repentance. As recipients of your saving grace, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that reminds us daily that we are not merely or even primarily victims at the hands of human oppressors or the product of a corrupt world system. But according to your word, we are rebels who have been transformed from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit as you have shown us our sins and revealed Christ to us. Would we never forget this hope as we live as sojourners in this world and as citizens of a heavenly kingdom? May we not only live in light of this blessed hope, but share it with others, those in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces. As you call us to do in the scripture, we continue to pray at this time for the leaders and those in high places whom you've appointed to govern our lives under your authority. We pray for President Trump, for Governor Newsom, and County Public Health Officer Sarah Cody. Out of fear of you, may they make provisions for us as a church to safely gather soon, to lead a peaceful and godly life that we might shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Ultimately, we pray for the salvation of their souls, as that is what you desire for them and for all people, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We also pray for our country, a nation that has largely abandoned and suppressed your truth. During these chaotic times, we are reminded that we are anything but one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Instead, the sad state of our country reflects what Romans 1 speaks of, a people who, in rejecting your lordship over us, have been given over to our sinful lust, to a debased mind, and to self-destruction. We pray for repentance across this land, as your wrath is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We hope in you and trust in the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, regardless of race, regardless of political party, not just for blacks, but also for whites, not just for Republicans, but also for Democrats. We pray for the church, the foundation and pillar of your truth, that we would indeed be that. May you strengthen us to declare and defend your truth in love without compromise in a world that is increasingly hostile to your word. May we see your word as authoritative, inerrant, absolutely necessary and sufficient for our lives, holding fast to the word of life and clinging to your precious and very great promises. We pray for wisdom from above, for protection against the schemes of Satan, for holiness and unity that distinguishes us from the world. May we not deviate or become distracted from the clear mission you have given to us, that as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, we are to proclaim your excellencies to the dark world, having been called out of this darkness into your marvelous light. And having been left in this world for this particular reason, may we remain faithful during these times in our gospel witness until you come again. 
Finally, we want to pray for the various needs of our church. We continue to lift up Pastor Mark and his family into your hands, that you would protect him as the one whom you've called to lead this church. We also pray for the leaders, the elders and deacons of this church, that we would be those who are filled with your word and with your spirit, whose lives are above reproach and worthy of imitating. We also pray for a future associate pastor who would not only support, but also expand the ministry that you have called us to, the ministry of word and prayer. And as much as we are thankful to be able to meet in this building, we pray that if it be your will, you would one day grant us our own church building in which we can meet. Continue to the work, do the work of equipping the saints and evangelizing the lost. We pray that you would stir our hearts to continue to give generously to the work of the gospel through your church. We pray for the members of this church and for our hearts. For those who are unruly or idle, would you bring your word to bear on their hearts that they might be struck with godly sorrow that leads to repentance over their sin. May they receive rather than resist your loving discipline. At the same time, we pray for those who are faint-hearted and weak, those who are struggling with sickness and anxieties. As they look to your word, may you encourage, support, comfort, and strengthen them. In particular, this morning, we want to pray for our dear sister, Brittany Fung, as her mother was recently diagnosed with late-stage cancer. We pray for healing, if that be your perfect will. But even if it is not, would you bring peace and comfort that surpasses understanding to their family? We pray that this would happen as their hearts grow, to behold, to trust, and delight in you as their Savior and Lord, regardless of the outcome and circumstance. As we now come to the exposition of your word, would you prepare our hearts to receive it as what it is, the divinely inspired word of God and not the words of men? Would we joyfully embrace and submit to it that it might have its intended effect upon our lives as we seek to grow in obedience, faith, and repentance? Would it make each of us wise for salvation and equip us for every good work, teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training us in righteousness? For the sake of your name, we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you, Ted, for shepherding our hearts and leading us to the throne of grace and making us mindful of what a privilege we have, but what a need we have for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, before we return to Psalm 23, it's my heart to devote one more exposition of God's word to understanding biblically what God is doing and what he's saying to us in and through these tumultuous and crazy times of COVID-19 and George Floyd era protests. And as we watch the news and we follow social media, what is obvious and I'm sure is disturbing to many 
is that the leaders of our world, as well as many in the church, continue to be at a loss as to what to do and how to remedy a nation that is burning with hate and fear and sin. And brothers and sisters up front, I have to tell you on my own heart, I personally anticipate that things in the world and circumstances in the world will only get worse rather than better, especially as we approach the elections in November. As this world increasingly places its hopes and efforts in things that cannot remedy the human heart. Sadly, we see this momentum both in the world, but also in the church, this incredible expectation and emphasis and effort in things ultimately that cannot save or remedy what is truly the root of these problems. And as we hurtle towards that election and people eventually will be disappointed one way or the other, certainly the circumstances and the situations in our world and the hearts that will be displayed will not be in many cases good. And we need to watch and pray even as we have done this morning and continue to do so. But we also need to look for joy in the heart of the Lord. Because the Lord's heart is just remarkably different from the heart of this world. And that's important for us to remember, brothers and sisters. Yes, the world is a dark place. But as we walk, and when we walk with the Good Shepherd, His is the heart of eternal reconciliation and joy and love. And as we come to Christ and His Word, Jesus explains to us what has been lost in this world and what has been lost, quite frankly, among many of the spiritual leaders. That very clearly God has a purpose in all these things. And He hasn't hidden it from us. He hasn't made it confusing. He's not hiding from us. He's not avoiding. He's not putting these things out in Gnostic mysteries. God has made it very clear what we are experiencing right now and what we are witnessing. And very clearly, God's purposes in all these things, including COVID-19 and George Floyd, is God's fulfilling of His authoritative and inerrant Word right before our eyes. And His calling of His lost sheep, His bride, the church, and that's us, to repent to abandon ourselves and to abandon our sin and by faith humbly turn to His Lordship as our only hope of salvation from His coming judgment of the world. The Lord's unpacking for us and showing us in keeping with what's clear in Scripture, He's moving the world towards the coming of His Son. And when His Son comes, He's going to come in judgment of the world. And the Lord delays, and the Lord unfolds these things before our eyes and gives us a foretaste of the judgment that is to come out of love and mercy very, very specifically for His people, His church, His lost sheep, so that we, it's easy for us to point our fingers at the world, oh, they need to do this, the president, they need to do this, the senators, they need to do this. And we need to pray as we did this morning for their repentance. But brothers and sisters, the pointed fingers that come that the Lord is using this and in the history of the church and in the history of Scripture, all those Old Testament prophets 
the major prophets and the minor prophets, the ones who proclaim God's judgment against abuse and injustice and oppression of the least among us, all of those things. As we open our scriptures and we read it carefully, what's very clear is God has sent the prophets to speak to his people, not to the pagan nations around first and foremost, and the people he is first and foremost calling to repent are those who have already had a revelation from God of who he is and what his path of salvation. It's a calling back so that the world might be called to. Brothers and sisters, this is what this is all about. It's not confusing. In Luke 13, Jesus is told about a brutal incident of Roman injustice towards the Jews. Pilate has slaughtered a group of Galileans while they are trying to offer sacrifices in the temple. It is blasphemous, it is bloody, it is brutal. In a place of worship, Pilate steps in to slaughter these Galileans. And this, in Luke 13, is brought to Jesus' attention. What is Jesus' response? Let's gather a million-man march in Jerusalem. Let's all get on our Twitter accounts and go to social media. Let's look at the systemic structures in the community that have allowed this injustice to happen. Verse 3, Jesus says to those who have brought this news to him, Luke 13, 3, he says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus never minces words. Jesus never stutters. Jesus gets straight to the point. Brothers and sisters, there is no shortage of brutality and injustice and racism in America. Americans have responded in the church and outside the church, as we always have, with protests, with calls for political reformation, calls for social justice, with calls for racial reconciliation. In 1773, Americans responded with the Boston Tea Party against their British overlords. And in 1965, the Civil Rights Movement marched from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama with Martin Luther King, among others, helping to lead that march in protest And in 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention issued a statement on racial reconciliation, owning and identifying the origin of the Southern Baptist Convention in the defense and using Scripture to defend slavery in America. And brothers and sisters, I'm thankful to the Lord for the desire to publicly stand against evil and injustice. And I'm thankful to the Lord for those believers who were and are willing to take ownership 
for horrific sins in this nation. But brothers and sisters, even unbelievers can see that none of these acts of contrition and works of men were able to save George Floyd. Not in this life or to determine or to save him for the next life. And I'm not coming out and saying that George Floyd wasn't a believer. I'm saying that if he is with the Lord, it wasn't a public statement from the Southern Baptist Convention. It wasn't a march in Selma. And it wasn't a protest that saved him. Brothers and sisters, these things that are being called for, not just by the world, but by believers and people in the church as well, none of these things have prevented the horrors that we continue to see in abundance and acceleration. What is often overlooked is that in his word, the only remedy Jesus offers for the evil and injustice of this world is Christ's call to repent and to follow him. And in Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus shows us very specifically what this repentance looks like, but he also shows us the true reconciliation And the lasting joy that true repentance alone can bring. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 15. And we'll read together the parable of the prodigal son. And we'll start in verse 11. And we'll read not the entire portion, but just close to the end. Luke 15, 11. And he, that's Jesus, said, There was a man who had... Two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish But the Nazbi says, I am dying here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. This is a parable that we're all too familiar with. What Charles Dickens referred to as the greatest story ever written. But what's often forgotten, this is a parable like the two parables that precede it. This is a parable that's all about the true repentance that God himself rejoices in. This is all about the true repentance that brings true reconciliation and eternal joy. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, Luke provides the context. And he provides the reason for why Jesus gives this parable. Not just this parable, but three parables about repentance. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and this, what has become known as the parable of the prodigal son. And his reason for giving it is not dissimilar to the circumstances that we ourselves as Americans find ourselves in today. Verse 1, 15, 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, To listen to him. That's Jesus. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, and that's Jesus, told them this parable. Then he proceeds to tell first the parable of the lost sheep, and then the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. What's now known as the prodigal son. What really is a parable about two sons. And we didn't get to that last portion about the son who doesn't celebrate, but insists on hating. And very clearly, the reason Jesus gives these parables is that the Pharisees and the scribes, as mentioned here, the Bible expositors of the day, the Bible experts of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they do not understand what they are seeing. More than not understanding what they are seeing. They are hating, and they are pointing their fingers, and they are disgusted. And they are scoffing and they are looking down at what happens. They are protesting. They are protesting what Jesus is doing. And in their protest, they are demonstrating that they do not understand the heart of God or the nature of true repentance. Scoffers do not understand the heart of God or the nature of true repentance. Especially religious scoffers. The nature of this true repentance that it's put out for us very simply. And brothers and sisters, I'm bringing us back to this. I know you're familiar with it. It's because we forget. We forget because the world calls repentance something totally different. We see that in our streets and our social media. And we see that in the recommendations from many people in the church. The world looks at reconciliation very differently. The flesh looks at reconciliation very differently. The devil looks at 
reconciliation and defines it very differently. We forget what it is and we call many of these things repentance when it's really not repentance. And here in that very first verse, Luke 15, 1, Holy Spirit shows us what repentance and true repentance is. And it's simply described as sinners drawing near to Jesus to listen to him or to hear him. Sinners drawing near to Jesus to hear him speak. Brothers and sisters, what is God doing in and through COVID-19 and George Floyd? He is calling sinners to come near to his holy and beloved son to listen to him. We have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, are we drawing near to Jesus in order to listen to him? Over all the chatter that we hear, over all the postings, over all the news, over all the disputes going on in the church about who's for social reconciliation and who's for social justice and all the different chatter that's there and all the different people, well, shouldn't we love and shouldn't we get together and can't we meet and can't we discuss and listen? There's all this discussion right now in the church about we need to listen to those people who have suffered. And I am all for that. But brothers and sisters, if we haven't listened to what Jesus has to say, all is lost. God, through all of this and through his word, is calling us to draw near to his son and listen to him. He's calling us to repent. Why? That brings us to our first point for this morning. Why is he calling us to repentance? Why is he calling us to draw near to his son to listen to him? Because biblical repentance is God's only remedy. His only remedy for our rebellious pride and hate. Biblical repentance is God's only remedy for our rebellious pride and hate. And this is what Jesus begins to show the Pharisees and the scribes and us in verses 11 through 16 in the introduction to this parable of the prodigal son. What is it that takes this rich young son from the love of his father and ultimately impoverishes, oppresses, and enslaves this son in the filth and darkness of this world. It's this young son's pride and hatred for his father. And that's demonstrated first in the son's demand in verse 12. Demanding of his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Give me half the estate. Split it down the center with my brother. In the ancient Near East, in the audience who was listening to Jesus, they would have been well familiar and they would have known and it would have gotten them right in the gut. How audacious, how bold, how prideful, how insulting. Such a demand would have been. Those of you who have listened to Dr. MacArthur's sermons, you know, essentially the young son is asking for his father Dad, it'd be better off if you were dead. Get out of my way. You're a problem. I just wish you'd just disappear and die so that I could have my inheritance and move on. That's functionally what he's asking for. 
an incredible heart of pride that people would be even ashamed to mention that they were even thinking. And this is what the son doesn't think. He comes out and says and he does. Second, verse 13. says, not many days later. Not like he waited. Not like he said, well, you know, there's some things I'd still like to do with my dad. No, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country or a distant country. The ancient Near East families lived together for generations. You could have up to three generations in one home. You still had to leave and cleave to obey the Lord, but you were together. You never left. So we see here very visibly in this parable, Jesus visibly illustrates not only an incredible heart of pride, but the consequences of that pride, which is hate, hate towards his father. This son cannot wait to get as far away from his family and his father as possible. The further, the better. Going to a distant or far country, not even close, nothing to do, severing the ties completely. And both his pride and hate for his father are on display as he squanders his father's estate with loose living in verse 13. Here Jesus illustrates the low esteem and view that this son has of his father's love and grace and all that his father has labored to provide for him. Brothers and sisters, that's the ancient Near East. But are we that far away in America right now? What is it as human beings and Americans that has brought us to this place where we now stand on one another's throats, far from God's love and far from His grace, filled with hatred that spills in our streets? And is it anything less than this same heart of pride and hate for our Creator, for His Word, and for His creatures and His creation that began with Adam and Eve first in the garden, It continued with Cain slaying his brother Abel even after God warned him. And with the Egyptians enslaving Israelites in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, this slavery thing, it's not a new thing. Is it any different from the heart? that has continuously and repeatedly spurned Americans to kill each other on the fields of Gettysburg or in the streets of Minnesota or South Georgia. Now what we hear, lobbied and advocated for, not just in the world, but also in the church, is that much of this is the result of a systemic race problem. And that we need to do something about a systemic race problem in America. But the parable of the prodigal son comes and says, 
It's inadequate to view this simply as a systemic race problem. I want you to stop for a minute and think about that statement, which we all say, racism in America, race problem in America, systemic race problem, structures of systemic race. I know we don't think very often about those terms that we use, but we need to start in light of God's word. Is the problem in America really a race problem? Think about the implication of that. That the problems that we have in America are the result of race. The problems that we're seeing on the street when we say this is a race problem, the problems that we see, it's a black problem. It's a white problem. It's a Latino problem. It's an Asian problem. It's a Jewish problem. When we go down that path, we don't even realize it, both in the church and outside of the church, that we're playing into the devil's hands because what we're coming and saying is, Race is the problem. If you're a black person, you're the problem. If you're a white person, you're the problem. If you're an Asian person, you're the problem. That's why we're here. So let's get rid of the Jews. Let's get rid of the blacks. Let's get rid of the whites. Let's get rid of the Asians. That was Hitler's approach to a race problem. This idea of our systemic race problem is not new to America. And somehow we're ignorant of history and we fail to see the patterns of the things that we do over and over and over again that are inadequate to address what is truly happening and to deliver us. So we come to God's word in Luke 15. Jesus shows us that we have something far worse than a systemic race problem. Americans have a systemic sin problem of pride, of greed, and of hatred of God and his word. And it is our pride and hatred of God and our greed in the church and outside the church that separates us from his love, that abuses his grace, and that abuses and oppresses his creatures. The distorted view of God's word and repentance the history of the Southern Baptist Church and where it started, it is a display of that about how men who believe in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture will go and twist that to defend something that is so contrary to the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, it is our pride, our greed, our hatred of God that blinds us and brings us all like the prodigal son to a country and a place that is far from God, where the rule of the game and the law of the land is standing on other people's throats for our own advantage. And that's exactly what happens to the prodigal son. In verse 14, through God's providence, a famine comes to the land. A natural disaster, not unlike pestilence or plague or COVID-19. A famine comes to the land and it exposes the prodigal son who begins to be in need. And in verse 15, rather than returning to his father, he attaches himself to one of the citizens of that country. And what does the citizen of that country do? He does what that is totally permissible, the way of that land. Does he love this Young man who's in need, does he care for him? Does he help him? Does he take him in? No. 
that citizen takes advantage of the prodigal son by sending him into his field to feed his pigs with so little provision that the prodigal son is longing to be fed with pigs' food. The Pharisees and scribes who were well-versed in the law listening to this would have been horrified and yet familiar. In the ancient Near East, if you ran out of money, if you were in debt, if you had nothing left, the only thing you could do was to hire yourself out for room and board. And you would give yourself up to a neighbor or someone else and work for them in exchange just for the necessities of life. And hopefully one day they would remit your debt and you'd be able to get back on your feet again. And that's what the Jubilee years were for in the Old Testament. And that was what God's provision was for in his own place. You remember Ruth and Boaz, how Boaz would always leave food in the fields and would always have provision for the poor. But that's not the way of the world. The world is Survival of the fittest. Does that sound familiar? Our evolutionary model. It's survival of the fittest. You do whatever you need to do. It's a free market economy in our relationships, our marriages. Your marriage, it doesn't work out. Move on and get something better and younger. Survival of the fittest. Your relationships aren't working out, survival of the fittest. Move on and get a better relationship. Your church is not working out, go and get a better one. Your job isn't working out, go and get the best deal you can get and get leverage and negotiate your deal and get what you deserve. Be on top with your foot on someone else's throat. Brothers and sisters, we applaud this in our jobs. We applaud this in our sports. We applaud this in our relationships. We applaud this in our divorces. We applaud this... In our families, we applaud this in Little League. And somehow we're surprised to see what we see on the streets of America. And we're horrified. And we say this is a white-black problem. Brothers and sisters, this is far greater than a white-black problem. The Jews who were listening at that time would have known and known what Jesus was referring to as this young man would go out and feed pigs and actually lust and have strong desire for what they were eating. It was a defilement in the Jewish culture that was worse than death. In verse 16, it says, And no one gave him anything. And no one gave him anything. He's in a country where no one has compassion on him. With these words, Jesus shows us the world of pride and hate and greed in which we live, which is far from the heart and the love of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's far from his word. You turn your back on his word, you're going to a far country, whether you turn your back on part of it or all of it. And brothers and sisters, we say, well, this is a parable. Jesus is hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating. Brothers and sisters, what is the plight of immigrant workers who have been illegal immigrants who have worked in our fields and have no place to use the bathroom, wash their hands, sick or ill, with their children in the fields for years in order to provide cheap produce for Americans and we look the other way?
What is the remedy according to Jesus as we come to verse 17 that he brings for this prodigal son who was defiled far from his father and being exploited and taken advantage of to the point of death? What is the remedy that Jesus prescribes? Is it a social justice program for pig workers? Is it a federal holiday? In verse 17, God's only remedy for pride and greed and hatred is a biblical repentance that begins with a change of heart. A change of heart that makes us desperate for God and makes us desperate for His mercy and grace. That brings us to our second point for this morning. Biblical repentance involves a change of heart that makes us desperate for God and His mercy and grace. Biblical repentance involves a change of heart that makes us desperate for God's mercy and grace. Verse 17 reads, But when he came to his senses, that's what Jesus says, when he came to his senses, or when he came literally to himself. And here Jesus makes it very clear when he says he came to himself. He's saying that there's a change in heart, there's a change in position. He is no longer in the same place he was before. He's seeing things differently. He was asleep before, now he is awake. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish, for I am dying here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. The parable begins with the prodigal son in pride and hate, running as fast and as far as he can from his father. But by verse 17, now he is desperate to go to his father because he knows if he doesn't, he is going to die. Brothers and sisters, how often is our repentance marked by desperation for God's help? Brothers and sisters, until we are this desperate, it's worth asking, has our heart really changed? Is there genuine repentance? What is it that brings true change and a change of heart? It's what Jesus shows us in verse 18. Even as the prodigal son confesses first to himself, before he confesses it to anyone, he confesses it to himself. He says, I will say to him, that's his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I want you to pay very close attention to the words that Jesus gives the prodigal son here. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is not an apology. Oh, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were offended. This is not an excuse. You have to understand, I was up late last night. I'm sorry I was cranky and irritable. I was... This is not an excuse. This is not an explanation. It's a confession of sin against God. That statement, I have sinned against heaven, is an idiom. It's a reference to offending and grieving and attacking God Himself. A direct violation 
against the Creator and before you. Here he's admitting everything he has done, everything that he is, is wrong. He's had it all backwards, including what he did to his father. And he's pointing out with this confession when he says, I have sinned against heaven. He's saying, what he did to his father, asking him for half the estate, walking out, taking it, squandering it, all of that, was it, what he did to his father is in fact a violation of God's word, an attack against God. an offense and a rebellion against God himself. And it recalls what Ted read for us this morning in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It recalls Acts 9 when Saul is brought to repentance where Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul's Persecuting the church. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Brothers and sisters, when we sin against one another, God takes it personally. It is a personal offense against the Lord. All the commandments, they're summed up in two commands. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when we fail to love our neighbors, in whole or in part, standing on people's throats or saying an unkind word or not obeying what God calls us to or not even coming alongside a brother in sin and saying something about it, but just letting him continue to sin. Brothers and sisters, all of that, God takes personally. It is a personal attack against the Lord. And if you want to see that, just go and read the Old Testament prophets, the majors, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the minors. They make it very, very clear. God is upset. He's going to bring judgment. And he's only delaying for his children, his sheep, those who know him and have his word to begin to repent. Then the son says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The hired servants, the hired hand, it's the lowest of the low. It's not a doulos. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a deacon. It's the lowest of the low. It's the temporary guys who come in. Not even worthy to be the lowest person in his father's household. And brothers and sisters, we have to stop and ask ourselves, How often does our confession and repentance look like this? And if it doesn't look like this, we have to ask ourselves, are we truly repenting? How often, men, do we say to our wives, when an unkind word is spoken, I have sinned against heaven before and before you. An angry word, an impatient word. I have sinned against God. I have offended Him. I have grieved Him by handling an image bearer in a way that is contrary to what His Word prescribes. And I've sinned before you. How often, when we've said an unkind word to our spouses, do we go on and say, I'm no longer worthy to be your spouse? 
When we offend one another in the church, brothers and sisters, forget about the world out there for a minute. Police officers, they're just doing what they know how to do. They're blind, they're in their sin. This is how the world has always operated. This is how they're going to continue to operate until Jesus comes into their lives. That is the rule of the game. And they're rewarded for it nine times out of ten. And one time out of ten they get busted and caught. And then everybody points their fingers at them. But we're not talking about the church, we're talking about us. How often, brothers and sisters, between brothers and sisters in the church, when we sin, do we come and say, I've sinned against God, I've offended Him, I've violated His word, and before you, I'm not worthy to be counted as your fellow member of the church. As opposed to defending that we're good, that we had all these reasons for why we did what was wrong, and the other person should go, we should be fine and A-OK. Brothers and sisters, I think if we're honest with ourselves, so often what comes out of our mouths when there's a conflict or a disagreement, so often what is called peacemaking, under the guise of being peacemakers. And that's not to diminish the four G's. I'm saying what's often done is many times it's simply a confession or an apology that is a horizontal manipulation to make ourselves and everyone feel better. And then we are surprised afterwards when the problem continues and the patterns of sin continue because we've never really addressed the heart of the issue, which is we've got a relationship problem with God and a fellowship problem with God. And until we resolve that with God himself, and until we see our sin as God sees it, not as the world or Satan or everybody else sees it, as God sees it, until we begin to see the sin in our lives the way God sees it, everything else is a joke and a manipulation to make ourselves feel better. Brothers and sisters, biblical repentance from Nineveh to Zacchaeus to the Apostle Paul to the prodigal son is nothing less than a change in heart that sees and confesses our sins against others for what our sin truly is, an attack against God. Biblical repentance is nothing less than a change in heart that sees and confesses and owns the consequences of our sin. That we have broken the relationship between us and God and us and our fellow man. Biblical repentance is nothing less than a change in heart that sees and confesses who we truly are, that we are worthless sinners who are unworthy to be called God's sons, and that we are completely incapable of fixing our problems, and we're incapable of saving ourselves. There's nothing that we can do or say that is going to make this better. There's nothing that I can do or say that is going to take away the damage of what slavery has done to certain segments of Americans. There's no amount of apologies to Japanese people who are put in internment camps that's going to take away that part of their past. And as we go through and see the path that is happening in the prodigal son, you see that this can only come from an incredible change of heart. Everything has become 180. He sees the world completely different than when he saw it, the way he saw it at the beginning. And his actions and his words show it. 
And we see the outcome of where repentance takes him. We lose sight of this. It doesn't make the prodigal son feel better about himself. His repentance initially makes himself feel far worse. Not as bad as maybe he should feel, but he feels worse. It makes everybody in the process feel worse. Because nobody feels comfortable when someone truly confesses sin in a biblical way. Nobody feels comfortable with that. Very uncomfortable. It's like there's an elephant in the room. What do we do with this? It's not natural because it doesn't come natural to our flesh. We're all trying to make ourselves and everybody around us in the room feel better in 10 or 15 minutes. God's word is here the same way Nathan came to David when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. Nathan comes and gives him God's word and he gives it to make him feel worse. Because, brothers and sisters, let's be honest about it. Do we really feel bad enough about who we are and what we've done to our brothers and sisters in America of whatever skin color? And the answer is most likely not. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is the change that makes us desperate for God and for His mercy and grace. As the Lord breaks our hearts over our sin and shows us the horror of who we are. And because of that and seeing it God's way, we become desperate, desperate, desperate for God and for His mercy and grace as our only hope of salvation. This is the only remedy for our pride and hate, brothers and sisters. And this is the only remedy that that will come in and, and, and change our hearts and wake us up and open our eyes and show us the place we need to run to is Christ and His cross. Anything less, from protests to apologies, more often than not, are simply self-righteous and self-serving patch jobs that will never bring us back to the true love and to the lasting joy of God. This brings us to our final point this morning. Biblical repentance brings us back to the Father's love and joy. Biblical repentance brings us back to the Father's love and joy. In verse 20, Jesus says, And he, and that's the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Overwhelming display of love. Overwhelming display of love. But what's worth noting, brothers and sisters, look at this carefully. Look at carefully at what the father does and does not do. The father does not try to chase his son while he is leaving. The father does not try to chase his son into the pigsty. The father does not have multiple counseling sessions with the son while the son is running away from him, trying to persuade him to come home. Trying to find the words. Oh, if I had just said this to my son, he would have said. If I had just been a little gentler, if I'd just done it in a different way, if I'd sweetened the pot, if I'd done it in a way, you, you know, if I just sent someone who could speak his language, maybe he wouldn't have left. Father doesn't do that. 
That is not, brothers and sisters, the Father's love. In the church, so often that is called chasing the sheep. But that's not chasing the sheep. Jesus shows us what pursuing a lost coin and a lost sheep is. He came, he proclaimed the gospel to sinners. They came to him and he embraced them at this dinner, who, those who drew near to him. But to the rich young ruler who would not leave everything to follow him, Jesus didn't go and pursue. He was grieved over it. But what the father does do is he waits and he watches. And he waits and watches in one place. He waits and watches on the road of repentance. And a long way off when he sees his son return home. He feels compassion. He runs. He embraces. And he kisses him. And he shows an open display of love. And brothers and sisters, we need to have both. We need to have God's love. Which is not trying to persuade and cajole people who don't want to come to the Lord to come to him. And try and find some way to sweeten the pot. And make it easier or understandable as if it's our language rather than a transformed heart that brings someone back to God. But at the same time, we have to wait and watch and we have to pray for those sinners to come home, for them to come to themselves, for them to reach sometimes through hard times and difficulties. And that's why the Apostle Paul refers to people in the church where he says to Timothy, I'm handing them over to Satan. Very politically incorrect to say that in our church in this day and age. It doesn't do good things for church membership or or votes of confidence. And it brings lots of statements of abuse. But, you know, go and call Paul an abuser. Paul makes the point he's doing this out of love because he wants their life to see how bad it is without the grace of God that they will come running back to the only place that brings lasting love and lasting joy and true reconciliation, which is the cross. Because, brothers and sisters, until our sin is dealt with, there can be no true reconciliation. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, he himself is our peace. So in verse 21, the son says to his father as he comes back, and his father is just showering him with love. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's worth noting here is the son does what he says he will do. His confession is both spontaneous, and it's worth noting here, his confession is very public. Before God, but also before men. This is outdoors in the open. This is on the street. This is close to probably the village that he left. And all the people who saw him left, scoffing, nose in the air, with all his father's wealth, probably dressed in the finest of clothes, leaving. See him come back in rags. And it doesn't matter. What is he doing here? He's placing the entirety of his life in his father's hands. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, do with me whatever you want. It's your decision. It's your call. It's your play. There is no negotiation here. There is no, hey, let's set some ground rules here. There's no, well, I'll do this if it's my life. Brothers and sisters, when someone's truly transformed, there's genuine repentance. It's not hard to discern. And when we say it's confusing or not clear, we've got to come back to God's word and say, is God a liar? Has he not made it clear over and over and over and over again? Are we willing to wait for the Lord to work rather than we ourselves coming to some sort of man-centered manipulation. 
True repentance, brothers and sisters, when you see it, you know it because it's exceptional. Exceptional. And it's where someone is willing to put the entirety of their lives in the Father's hands. No questions asked. Whatever the Father wants to do. New Testament scholar Daniel Bach says, He accepts the consequences of his choices. That's referring to the prodigal son. He accepts the consequences of his choices. There are no excuses, only confession and a humble request. The picture shows what repentance looks like. No claims, just reliance on God's mercy and provision. What is the father's response to such repentance? Verse 22. But his father, with joy, with joy, covers his son's filth, covers his son's shame with the best robe, gives him a ring to show that he's part of the family, calls for a feast, and the father does what his son could never do for himself. He restores the son to the family and to a right relationship, and he exalts his son, and he celebrates in verse 23. Bring the fattened calf. Why? Because the father recognizes true repentance when he sees it. And he knows that true repentance and true reconciliation is no work of man or manipulation. It is entirely a miracle and gift of God. Brothers and sisters, unity is a gift from God, and it is never separate from God's holiness as much as we try and squeeze God's holiness out with our negotiation. But the Father sees that this is a miracle from God. Verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus came. And he gave his life on the cross. And what he rose for. To provide a way back to the Father. To bring us to the love and joy of the Father. That the Father so greatly desires to share with us. How great does the Father desire to share His joy and love with us? He killed His own Son to make it possible. He raised Him from the grave. And this is the love and joy that Jesus is showing these tax collectors and these prostitutes who are drawing near to him, but whom the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and pointing their fingers at. Brothers and sisters, we fail to see that God's desire for us in all this. We resent him so often, for making us feel worse about ourselves. We resent people in the church who make us aware of our sin and and making us feel worse. And when we feel uncomfortable, we rally those terms like abuse or you wronged or you sinned because our pride has been offended. And I don't want to distinguish, I don't want to diminish those who have been genuinely abused, verbally, emotionally, or otherwise. But the lines have been blurred in our circles, and we bring that into the church. We resent that. We run from it. So often, brothers and sisters, we fail to see and enjoy the love and the joy that repentance is all about. Because, brothers and sisters, that's what repentance is all about. And when you minister to people, 
You realize when you don't call them on their sin and you don't point out that they have something wrong with God that they've got to fix and you try and find shortcuts to get there, what we're really doing is we're forfeiting the love and joy of the Lord. And when you bring sinners to repentance and you see them confess and you see those exceptional moments which are rare and you see the burden of sin lifted and you see almost the instantaneous relief when the Lord brings them to that point, And you see the confession that happens and you see the freedom and you see the community and the love of the church come together around that person. And you see the joy and the celebration that is lasting for those people. And you see the bond that comes. Getting a foretaste, brothers and sisters, of what we're seeing in in heaven. Love and joy. Brothers and sisters, how much love and joy are we seeing these days? With all this talk and all this protest and all these different things that people are calling one another to do. One of my professors in seminary exhorted the students in his class. He first warned us about how many men in the pastorate fall to sexual immorality. He warned us because he said, this can be you. You're not above it. There in all of us. But then he exhorted us that when a brother did fall, to try and persuade that brother to come and confess publicly before the church his sin. Now many people would say, well, that's a private sin. That's between him and his wife. He just needs to ask his wife for forgiveness. Why does the whole church have to know? Why do they have to get into all the sordid details? But I believe in many ways that seminary professor was exhorting us from the gospel and from what we're reading in the prodigal son. This public declaration that the son makes in front of everybody on that street before God and before his father, accurately calling sin, sin. And the seminary professor shared with us, he said, I'm saying, telling you to do this. He said, because the men who I've seen who were able by God's grace, to come before the local church and share with them and confess their sin. Those men were restored. And though they may not have resumed the pulpit, they found a place within the local church and in ministry where they were able to use their gifts for God's glory. But the men who through their pride would never come publicly before the church and let their sin be known, but instead were concealers, He said, sadly, all of those men who I've been called to minister to silently slipped away into the darkness, rarely to be heard from again. Brothers and sisters, God has a reason for why he gave us his word and why he calls us to repent according to his word. It's not to be brutal and unkind. It's because he wants you to experience the love and joy that only repentance in the cross can bring. Brothers and sisters, this last week, Pepsi Company finally did away with the Aunt Jemima brand. Over a hundred years. And I personally, I applaud this. I mean, it took you a hundred years plus to figure out that Aunt Jemima was demeaning and ugly and exploitative, and all of those other things, and representative of systemic whatever. And let's not kid ourselves. The fact that Pepsi's doing it now in 2021 and didn't do it before, do we think that they're doing it 
for any other reason than the bottom line and what they will lose in sales in this day and age. And we can look at this and everybody can pat themselves on the shoulder and say, good job, Aunt Jemima's gone. And I'm glad she's gone. Okay? But do we really think that this is going to make America a better place and address the pride and the hatefulness and the greed and everything that's destroying us on the street? And as ridiculous as we may find that, brothers and sisters, the church has not been that much different. Where so much of what we want or try to do is like trying to remove the Aunt Jemima labels from all our sin. And we feel better for ourselves and we make a public announcement of what we've done to make it better. And we think it's all good until the next George Floyd comes along. InterVarsity, InterVarsity, you're familiar with that, the campus ministry, posted on their website, four steps white people can take towards racial reconciliation. Four steps white people can take towards racial reconciliation. And I guess that means I as an Asian can't take them. Number one, awareness and recognition. Awareness and recognition that white ain't always right. Okay, this is directly taken from their website. Number two, listen and immerse. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Listen and immerse. Number three, risk and relationship. It's okay to be hurt, and that means having your feelings hurt, okay? That doesn't mean to hurt others. It's okay to be hurt, okay? And it's okay to hurt, to have sorrow in your heart. Don't be afraid of feeling uncomfortable, okay? Risk and relationship, number three. Number one, awareness and recognition. White ain't always right. Two, listen and immerse. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Number three, risk and relationship. It's okay to hurt and be hurt. Number four, risk and structures. Caring about people means caring about the situations they are in. InterVarsity. Christian fellowship. How different is that, brothers and sisters, from Pepsi taking off Aunt Jemima off the label? Brothers and sisters, this nation, this church, you and I, we need more than an apology or a group listening session. You see that InterVarsity profile, that's what American pastors are doing across the nations. You see the interviews, they're following that game plan. We need more than an apology, we need more than a group listening session. And when we go down that path, brothers and sisters, what we're saying is we don't need the cross. That the cross wasn't sufficient. We need the cross plus something else. Jesus, you didn't need to die. You just needed to come down for a group chat where we all felt uncomfortable And we all had and shared our feelings. Now we do need to listen. But even more so, we need our sin dealt with at the foot of the cross. And I make reference to this, brothers and sisters. Because as you know, so often I refer to that medical mission I took to South Africa. Where I, a short Asian male. No demographics to help me. Short Asian male. He spent his adult life hating white policemen, standing alongside a man who used to be a gay prostitute, standing alongside a retired white California highway patrol man, and together ministering and caring to and sharing the gospel and providing medication and food and water and nurturing Africans who were dying of HIV. 
What was it that brought those three men together, brothers and sisters? What brought a tangible love for the whole person? First for the heart and soul, but for the entire person. Brothers and sisters, it was nothing less than the cross and repentance in all three of those men. And that California Highway Patrolman, how did he get there? His brother committed suicide. 9-11 happened right after his brother committed suicide. He humbly phoned his mother. A grown man phoned his mother and asked her what he should do. And his mother said, you should go to Grace Community Church and hear John MacArthur preach. And that's how he got saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. And the link of change that comes where we listen, we love, and we care. And we do so in a meaningful way, brothers and sisters. And the world is in our venue given the gospel. Why? Not because of anything we do, brothers and sisters. Because Christ died so that we might be forgiven. And that we might repent. And that we might know the love and joy of the Lord and we might share it with others. Let me challenge you, brothers and sisters. Take one sin that the Lord has brought your attention or made you aware of. And go back to the prodigal son and say and ask the Lord, Lord, am I dealing with it your way? Would you change my heart? And would you enable me to have a heart that is desperate? for you and your grace and mercy, rather than the works of men. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have shown us the way, and you have shown us love immeasurable, and joy everlasting. And it was for the joy that was to come, Lord Jesus, that you obeyed, becoming obedient even unto death. Thank you for doing this. Would we not waste it, Lord? Would we not hide behind it in the sense of using it as an excuse not to obey your word and making light of our sins? But would we also not neglect it and diminish it and scoff at it by suggesting that all these other things, Lord, are some sort of substitute? For the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.